What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the You Know Ball podcast. I am your host, Troll Bro Dude. Today, I had on Tom West of Liberty Ballers to talk all about the slop. We did the slop up top. So we didn't talk all about that the whole episode. We did talk a little bit about Daryl Morey's interview yesterday, what we think it means, some other information coming out, including a Keith Pompey report, Jason Dumas on Sixers and Six slash SI6, which I guessed it on a week or two ago. I can't even remember how long it was, but go listen to that episode. There was a lot of good information about the Sixers in there. They talked about the Eagles. That pod's just great. You should just support Darian and Cliff because they do an awesome job of making like a super conversational Sixers pod that's just funny and good. And uh, yeah, I thought there was a lot of interesting information in that podcast that we discussed a little bit on here, but they dove deeper into what Daryl Morty is looking for, what he will take, what he won't take, all that shit. So go listen to them, go support them. And then me and Tom talked just about Joel Embiid's fucking absolute dominance against the Orlando Magic and honestly the entire NBA this season and whether he should be the MVP of the league. I don't really like to do MVP talk this early in the season, but because Joel has been playing like the best player in the league for the last month, I did feel like, month or two really, I did feel like this is something that we needed to talk about a little bit. And we talked about, you know, him versus Jokic and Giannis. We just talked about the idea of like the advanced stat stuff, which drives me fucking nuts. And I explained why. And then we ended the episode talking a little bit about Seth Curry, who I feel like is not really getting a fair shake from Sixers fans this year. I feel like he's had a fantastic season. I feel like Honestly, I don't really get all of the narratives around him uh, that are coming from a lot of people regarding like his play this season and like how he did in the Hawk series and 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 all that stuff. So so we covered all that and kind of tried to give Seth his flowers as much as we could. Obviously, this was more of a love fest for Embiid, but we also talked about Seth's importance to the team. And uh, once again, support uh, you can support you can. I am talking like a fucking idiot right now. You can support the podcast by donating in the square, which is in the link tree, which you can find in the description. You can rate us across all platforms. The podcast has been doing the best that it's ever done recently because, you know, obviously we all love the slop and uh, I want to continue to grow with that. And we have some exciting opportunities coming up that I'm just waiting to hear back on. And uh, yeah, so I'll keep you guys plugged in. I'll be back next week to talk more. I'm sure there will be more more slop up top once again. But uh, in the meantime, enjoy your weekend. Go Sixers. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Also, one last thing. I made a joke in this episode about the kid from Jerry Maguire having Iverson cornrows and wearing a jersey. Apparently that didn't happen. I looked it up afterwards because I was like, did that really happen? I'm having a Mandela effect moment where I feel like that happened. But maybe it was because Jonathan Lipnicki, I'm sorry that I canceled you, but maybe it's because he was in the movie Like Mike that I confused that. But I looked it up and apparently it was just another random Sixers fan, a, a white kid who had cornrows and an Iverson jersey and dressed up like Iverson. So that little kid is canceled, who is probably now in his 30s. So... Sorry to that little kid. I I meant to cancel you and not Jonathan Lipnicki. So all, all, all apologies to the god Jonathan Lipnicki. And uh, you'll get that joke later. See ya.
We work to work, you late to work, I holla and they send it You know my pride was colder than Chicago in December My dog out laying the law, ain't breaking no laws, out serving out the rock. Beats outside, still fucking in the car, still flipping in the car, still shooting at the car. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the You Know Ball podcast. I am your host, Trill Bro Dude, and today I am very excited to have on a special guest who a few people have requested to come onto the pod, so I'm happy that he was able to make time. We have Tom West from Liberty Ballers. What's going on, Tom? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, of course, dude. I, uh, I've i been a fan of yours for a while. I've read a lot of your stuff. And uh, we're going to start up top with our favorite thing to talk about, which is the slop. So we got more slop for the piggies. Someone told me not to call call the listeners piggies anymore, and I simply refused. I, it's obviously I'm doing a bit, guys. Come on. I don't think that you're piggies. I'm also a piggy who loves slop. We're all in this together as Sixers fans. So Daryl Morey went on the radio yesterday and basically just lied for 30 minutes. Like, that's just kind of what he does. He goes onto major media, tells a bunch of bullshit lies. And uh, just up top, Tom, what did you really take from that interview that he did with Mike Missanelli yesterday? Did, did anything really stand out to you? I mean, I think... I mean, the comment on the Kings saying that there is a deal that would work was just bold. Like, I didn't think he'd say, he'd actually name a team purely because it's the exact sort of thing that you'd think could get a tampering fine. And to just that you could easily dodge around that and say, there's a team, uh, you know, in the league with a deal that could work for us. Like, you could just keep it anonymous and, you know, make it sound like you're kind of working towards something, you know, keep fans happy emphasize your trying but not actually name specific teams so I thought that was intriguing at least and and I think one of the other main things was just that they've clearly kind of come around on lowering their asking price a bit like going from being you know we want a dame we want a bill we want a hardened type player and the whole you know top 25 to 30 sort of player list that you know came out a month or two ago going to now it's more like you know maybe a top 40-ish player a young guy who could kind of grow with the team and then a couple of picks like Maury talking as if that would be, you know, a fine return was was intriguing, like that they've come around a bit to the fact that, you know, with Embiid playing so well, you know, if they can kind of move into the kind of top five, which is what Maury feels like they're close to. Um, and he's always kind of talked about in the past, like if you have like a 5% chance at a title, you go for it. Um, so I think I'm kind of reiterating that if they can get Embiid help, maybe have some assets for the future as well, they can kind of lower their initial asking price from that sort of top end star um, yeah. from but... Jason Tatum and four first round picks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's a little bit unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, I think, I think that was interesting. Um, but again, it's still just kind of like he was saying it's less likely than likely. Um, and then at some point said, you know, say that, you know, there's a good chance that nothing happens. So I still kind of feel very uncertain as to whether anything actually does happen before the deadline. But I, my positive sort of mindset where I'm thinking, I just want all this to be over because it's been dragging on for months. <laughs> is that he's at least kind of lowering the asking price a little bit. And I think just by the way he was speaking, it sounds like, you know, from mentioning the Kings and kind of young player picks thing, 
maybe a package of like Tyrese Halliburton, you know, Buddy Hill, Harrison Barnes and a pick or two is something that the Sixers would actually say yes to. If that's the case, then maybe something gets done. But I mean, it's still all just kind of up in the air right now. But I thought there were a couple of interesting things he said. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I do feel like I can't tell if it's the positive side of me or if it's just like you said, like it's just exhaustion from months of talking about this to the point yeah. where it's like there has to be something done, right? Like, because otherwise, then what the fuck was all of this for? We're just going to now wait on it for another four months after you're not able to make trades and then hope something comes around in the offseason. And, and what was the last holding out for the last few months really end up doing with Ben Simmons value now in the offseason obviously they can revisit it and I do think that everything you talked about makes a lot of sense to me the the one thing I did find funny is that he's like well with Joel playing as well as he is right now I think we could win the title is currently constructed which he did say he hopes that they're in a better position later but like, there's no fucking way this team is winning a title. <laughs> like no, no. the amount, like as someone said on Twitter, they were like, "He's not wrong. Two teams could get into plane crashes and die." Right. <laughs> like the the things that would have to happen for all of that to go in the Sixers' favor would be pretty massive. We're talking about a Giannis injury, KD's injury, maybe staying longer than it is. Uh, maybe the Heat aren't 100%. Like, there are four or five teams that I would say, like, have to have pretty significant injuries ahead of the Sixers in order to be as they are currently constructed to even get to the finals, let alone win a title. So that part was funny to me. The other part that was just, like, funny to me was the Ben Simmons part where he talked about, like, we want Ben to come back. He's a perfect fit with Joel Embiid, which is, like, not true at all. Like, they're, like, okay, so for what the Sixers need right now, which is what he talked about, like defense and rebounding and playmaking and stuff, stuff that Ben is good at, okay, that makes sense. The idea that Ben Simmons is a perfect fit with Joel Embiid has been proven wrong time and time again in the playoffs. Like in the regular season, sure, totally fine, great, works well. If you were to construct a team, you wouldn't be like, the sec I want the second best player on the team to be a defensive guy who's more effective running in the open court isn't all that valuable in the half court doesn't shoot and is basically a rim running big like that would not be the ideal second guy that you would pair with Joel Embiid if you were constructing a team from scratch but obviously he's going on the radio he's lying and he's he's just trying to scrap for any sort of leverage in a deal that he could possibly get whether it's with the Kings or it's with a third team which he constantly brought up in the interview by the way he kept basically saying like you know the king's deal is there but it would probably have to involve a third team now the comments about the top 40 player thing was interesting to me because everyone kind of took that quote as like is he talking about Halliburton because he kind of was signaling that a young player could be involved as well. And everyone immediately went to Halliburton because, you know, Kyle Newbeck reported that Halliburton is the guy that Maury would be interested in building a deal around all that shit. But to me, there's no player on the Kings that I would say is a top 40 player right now. The only one you could make an argument for based on their career to this point is De'Aaron Fox. And, 
all the reports from Kyle and some other people are that he's not interested in De'Aaron Fox, which could possibly mean, okay, third team stuff and Fox go there. A player goes back to the Sixers. So when he said that top 40 player thing, like, what did you think of that? Because in my mind, like, I like Tyrese Halliburton a lot. I think eventually maybe he could get to that top 40 level. I don't know if he can get much higher than top 40. But I think that the idea of Tyrese Halliburton being a top 40 player is at least a few years away and definitely not perfectly lined up with Joel Embiid's prime, similar to the Maxi thing, which he touched, he touched on in the interview. So what did you think of the top 40 element of it? Because, like... There's definitely no player that the Sixers could get back unless it unless it's the Aaron Fox and all these reports are not true, right? Yeah, I mean, that was the tricky thing to try and interpret. It was like, is Halliburton that guy? I mean, I don't know, because he also touched on... I mean, I didn't listen to the interview live. I was just kind of looking through all the quotes. But he also touched on, you know, having a young player who kind of grow, like a Tyrese type who can kind of develop. I wonder if he's kind of maybe hinting at that Halliburton is that guy and he can become that top 40 player. I don't know if they think like he's a year away as in he could help now and then become that kind of top 40 player a year or two away. I don't know, but no, I agree. Like there's no one on the Kings that's like close to being a top 40 guy, really. Um, De'Aaron Fox isn't a guy like everything we've heard for ages is that the Sixers aren't interested in Fox. Um, and I just don't think the fit is as clean there either. And like Maxi has probably been better than Fox this season anyway. And there's quite a lot of overlap in their skill sets, at least in terms of like how they attack the basket and that kind of thing. Um, and they're both so six two yeah. guard. Exactly, combo like they're both small. Like <laughs> Halliburton just makes far more sense as like a taller guard. He's better off the ball. He's a really good three point shooter. Um, really good passer still, and he's kind of his on ball defense is an issue, but off ball, like he's quite smart. His positioning and instincts are pretty good in passing lanes and that kind of thing. So he's just a better fit. Um, I only wonder if maybe that's where the kind of three-team deal comes into it and that you get something from the Kings, like the young player, maybe Halliburton, the Sixers get what they want and a couple of picks. And then you bring in someone like a third team, I don't know whether it's like the Hawks, and you view, I don't know, John Collins as a top 40, arguably, player. And then maybe, you know, you move out uh, Tobias Harris and then that's how everything kind of comes together. So you get a top 40 player from someone else and the Kings give you the kind of youth and pick side of things. Maybe that's what Maury was getting at. But I mean, that, you know, pulling off something like that is obviously difficult to do. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to work out exactly what it means there, to be honest. Yeah, it seems far fetched because all the reports that have come out is like, you know, obviously, keep in mind, the Sixers are lying. The Kings are lying. Everyone's lying. The Hawks are lying. No one tells the truth around the trade deadline through the media. There's really no benefit for them to tell the 100% truth to the media uh, if they are trying to get the best deal possible. Because if you read through all these reports, it's like, and I think we can all just kind of put it together that like, no one wants to buy Harris's contract. If you're sending that out, it has to get some sort, you have to attach some sort of positive value to get off of that contract. So whether it's a first round pick and a young player, two first round picks, whatever it is, maybe that's where they could get involved. But I don't think that, adding an you'd have to add a lot to that to like get back positive value i look at like the eric bledsoe drew holiday trade from a few years ago and by the way eric bledsoe wasn't making nearly as much money as tobias harris is right now he's he made like 20 million less a year 
and had the same amount of years. It was three years left. But in order to get a top 30, top 35 guy like Drew Holiday back, they had to send out Eric Bledsoe, three first round picks and three swaps. So in order to get back like a top 40 guy for Tobias Harris, even if you're sending out Ben Simmons becomes a lot more complicated, as you said. The one theory that I talked about with Marty Teller today, which me and Marty obviously always talk about this kind of shit, is there's there there's two elements to this. There's one path where I think that like I just think that there's a guy out there that they're targeting that's a top forty guy right now, and I think it's Brandon Ingram. I'm not sure. The reason why I think it's Brandon Ingram is because it's like they keep talking about the idea of fit around Embiid and like. Ingram is a good passer. He's a great shooter. He can run a little bit of offense. He's an ideal kind of secondary guy that you would like to have with Joel Embiid. Big wing, scoring guy, whatever. Obviously, it doesn't make a lot of sense with Tobias Harris, but you'd worry about that later if you're able to get Brandon Ingram. So the reason why I bring up Brandon Ingram is because like randomly on a podcast like two or three weeks ago on The Athletic, they were like, I heard that Brandon Ingram's name has been thrown around out there. Which to me is like, I haven't heard that about Jalen Brown. I haven't heard that about Bradley Beal. I haven't heard that about Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I've heard that about Brandon Ingram and De'Aaron Fox. And like, once you, once again, De'Aaron Fox might be a little bit of a clunky fit. He's having a down year. Not sure if the Sixers or any team would consider him a top 40 player right now. Even though I think if you took the whole of his career, you could make an argument he's like a fringe top 40 guy with potential to be better. But Brandon Ingram, to me, I don't think that this deal gets done before the deadline. I just want to clarify that. Like, I think that, like, if they were to get a Brandon Ingram type, it would probably be in the offseason. And maybe this deal could set them up to get that. Maybe Fox or Halliburton plus contracts, if it's Halliburton, go to the Pelicans or whatever it is. They get they Pelicans get a little bit younger. They get a guy who would also still fit with Zion if he ever can get back on the court. I don't really fucking know. Uh, and they can kind of pivot. So do you think there's there's any validity to that? And I do have a second part that I do want to follow up with that might make a little bit more sense and be more realistic before the trade deadline. But like, do you think a guy like Ingram could be someone that they're targeting? I could, it would surprise me, but I could, I could see it. Yeah, like, I think you made an interesting case. And I, I think when all this started, you know, the whole Ben Simmons saga, like I always thought Moy would probably kind of pull off something that no one really saw coming. Like we'd all talk about, you know, Bill, you know, Jalen Brown when that became a thing and, you know, King's stuff. I always just felt like Maury's kind of creative and, you know, with all the lying and stuff, like he could keep what's actually going on (laughs) under wraps and then just catch everyone off guard with like a, you know, another player like a bland and Ingram type that, uh, that we weren't really thinking about. Um, so I could see it. I could see it happening. Um, yeah, I like I like you said, you, you can worry about the Tobias stuff afterwards. Um it's still awkward like fitting him in. Um yeah, I could see it though. What were you gonna add to that? Well, I, I do think that like I think the more realist realistic move that could possibly happen before the trade deadline, like once again, still a long shot. Every legit reporter, including people that I trust, have been 
I think a little bit of it is posturing from like a trade standpoint from like, we don't want to like just give up Ben for nothing. Like I think all of that's true, but I also think that they're like, he said yesterday, like there is a Kings deal that could be done if they're basically, you know, he went on the radio and acted like uh, a villain from a Batman movie. He's like Bane, like making his demands and, you know, Monty McNair, you know, basically just get the balls to pull off a move and, and we have a deal. But the thing that I do think that could be interesting before the deadline could be maybe McNair and and Morty are helping each other. Like, this is some galaxy brain shit that me and Marty... Marty actually was the one who kind of came up with this. And this is kind of more like, like seven-dimensional chess shit. Like This is how long this has been going on that we just got a yeah, galaxy brain. <laughs> This is like, yes, I'm losing my mind, but w- what else can I do in this situation? Yeah. Like, uh, of course I'm losing my mind. If I if I talk about one subject for long enough, I'm going to go absolutely crazy. But they used to work together. They're friends. They have a longstanding relationship. Could it be that the 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 Kings are really interested in a Sabonis deal? Like, they're interested in a deal that's maybe based around some of their other young players and draft compensation, like the Kings guy, Brandon Nunez, that I had on the other day. And maybe that's the deal that they really want. And they're using the Simmons situation to be like, we we could go for Ben Simmons, who, like, Sabonis and Simmons are probably similar tiered players, but I think I would think that the league values Ben a little bit more. I just think just because he's, like, former number one pick, you know, all defense guy, like blah, 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 like Sabonis and Ben both don't fit on a ton of teams, but they're obviously both very good players. I think that it's possible that they could be working together. And then the Sixers from the Sixers end, I thought it was they were using the Hawks as leverage over the Kings. But to me, the only the only people that fit that thing that Daryl Morey talked about on there that could be realistic before the trade deadline would be John Collins being potentially a top 40 player, at least in the conversation. I don't know if he is. If you went out and you you did a list, like it, it's a lot harder to figure out who's like a top 40 player, but he's definitely in the conversation for at least the fringe conversation. Of yeah, players. I think he's arguably close enough where you can say we got the package we wanted because he's close enough to top 40. Like it wouldn't be laughable that he was the kind of top 40 type piece if that's what happened. Yeah, I and I fun. and I've said here on here before. I think Ben Simmons is the better player, but I think John Collins makes sense on a lot more teams. Which yeah, they keep talking about fit, 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 fit. Like they talked about it with you know we saw how nineteen twenty went. We saw what happened when when Al Horford and Josh Richardson and all these guys who and like Tobias was was on the team. Like they're all talented, good. Well, maybe not Josh Richardson, but the other players are talented and good, and it just didn't work and. Basically, what what the situation here is, is like, to me, the only people that could fit that kind of mold would be John Collins and DeAndre Hunter. So you look at John Collins and you say, maybe top 40 guy, who's a young guy on the Hawks that like has showed some promise. The biggest thing about DeAndre Hunter to me is like, I don't know if he's going to be as good as he was last year. He's been injured. He's had some issues throughout the year. He's obviously a Philly guy. So I think that people would could buy into that. I always joke that like, if you literally went to school within like, you don't even, it has to, it could be like 40, 50 miles. Like we could extend it up to CJ McCollum with Lehigh. 
Like, if you went to school in the Philly area, you're literally Michael Jordan to most Sixers fans. Like, <laughs> like, like, I know that he went to Virginia, but he's from Philly. Like, if you either grew up here or you went to school in the area, like, people absolutely love you. Like, if I have to hear about, like, Josh Hart and Dante DiVincenzo and, like, guys who are good players, like, I'm not saying they're bad NBA players, but, like, if I have to keep hearing about them, like it drives me fucking nuts. But back, back, back to the DeAndre Hunter thing, like DeAndre Hunter at least showed flashes last year where like he was in that sub all-star conversation and he, he is a perfect fit. If I think like we need a starting small forward, like I like Matisse Thibault a lot. Don't get me wrong. Like he's been great this year. And like, I've been concerned about him in the past because of the offense and because of kind of how that defensive stuff is valuable, but like maybe not as much in the playoffs when, his offense is really bad, but like DeAndre Hunter and John Collins, if you could get a sub all-star power forward, who's kind of a good fit with Embiid, at least in theory, and then you could also get DeAndre Hunter and potentially draft picks out of that. Like to me, that's the kind of deal that gives you flexibility. It makes you pretty fucking good this year to the point where I'm like, I might even move us up a tier. Like I might, I still think we'd be below the nets and the bucks, but like, I'd probably put us in the same tier as like the heat and the bulls. And if those teams are healthy and like, that's the kind of deal that I'm talking about where it's like, it gives you the flexibility for the future. It makes you better this year. And like, who knows, dude, like Deandre Hunter had a stretch last year where he looked like an all-star and like John Collins has been a sub all-star for two or three years now. So like, what's your thoughts on that? Like, that's the deal to me that he was describing, even though the Hawks thing doesn't seem to be like at the front of everyone's mind yeah I mean I think preferably like the Sixers should want kind of more perimeter creation like a bit more playmaking that kind of guy who can help handle things next to him be like obviously Maxi is like stepping into that role this year and he should be doing more than like the touches that Doc and the coaching staff kind of give him um but I think you know, preferably you have a bit more kind of offensive punch. But yeah, no, I think that package is pretty interesting. Like John Collins is really good. Like he's not a super high volume three-point shooter, but he's been, you know, plus 40% for a few years now. Um, he'd obviously and that's never really come back thing. to bite the Sixers, so. Oh yeah, I mean, guys always shoot just as well as they always have in Philly, right? So that's not <laughs> a problem. Um, but yeah, like, and he, you know, he's a great finisher. Like him playing off and beating the dunker spot should work well. Um I think, you know, when you want to downsize, like if you, if the Sixers actually start staggering Maxi and Embiid properly, like you could have Collins playing some sort of smaller uh, minutes at the five with Maxi kind of lead those bench units. They'd be a really good pick and roll duo. Um, you know, he can provide a bit of sort of help side room protection. Like I think there's a lot of things that Collins does well that would help. Um, you know, the Tobias thing is awkward, but I think, yeah, you kind of get pieces that work with Embiid and you kind of figure out the rest later, like you said. And then Hunter, like, the Sixers' wing rotation is really, like, there's there's plenty of holes there. Like, you know, it's without horrible. Danny Green, yeah. Like, they just don't have much size and, like, reliable two-way play on the wing. Like, obviously, Danny Green is still a really useful player, but he's he's been out recently. And then once you get past that, like, Thibault, obviously, you know, great defensively, the offense is still the problem there. Like, if and they don't have much size, like, Hunter would just give them a bit more like bulk, a bit more positional versatility uh, and a bit more switchiness that they don't have so much right now. And I think, 
yeah, if you can get someone like that and have a bit, you know, a bit of shooting, a bit more size and defense, like that would just kind of help fill out the wing rotation. And then you add Collins in there as well. Like there's a lot to like. And then if they can get any assets, you know, like draft picks for the future, I think that can at least keep, you know, keep their kind of options open down the line. And then, you know, maybe something else happens in the off season or moving forward, like, you know, we'd have to wait and see. But I think that, yeah, there's definitely value there. And I think it would make sense for the Sixers to do that. I only wonder if, yeah, Maury does want that kind of creator guy to kind of help lead the offense a bit more and just give them more outside of like Maxi and and Embiid. Because, you know, with Harris kind of struggling like it has been this season, like there just isn't much offensive help outside of, you know, Curry and Maxi. You know, when yeah. Harris is having an off night, like but the offense is just kind of lacking that. And obviously, you know, Collins can help and Hunter would help. But, you know, in terms of like ball handling and, you know, the kind of stuff that you'd need to kind of break down defenses in the playoffs, like when, you know, Embiid can only do so much, like I think there'd be a little bit lacking in that department. So I wonder how eager Maury would be to accept that deal. But there's, yeah, there's plenty of, you know, positives there. Yeah, that's the thing. And, but it is funny because, like, when I look at like three teams trades, because everyone's just like, "Oh yeah, well, there's could be a three team trade or a four team trade." I always get stuck. Like, I'm like, okay, like, oh, the De'Aaron Fox for Sabonis rumors came out this this week, and it's like, well, Indiana's interested in Ben Simmons. Maybe they send out Fox, and then Sabonis goes there, and then I'm like, but then what do the Sixers get back? Like, it always becomes very hard to figure out because. It is a little bit harder when, you know, you have what the Sixers currently have, which is the Tobias Harris issue. You know, you have, you need a perimeter guy around Joel Embiid if you really want to contend for titles, all that shit. But the the thing I keep coming back to is it's really hard to find good wings. Like, really hard yeah. to find good wings. Like, like, we're talking about Danny Green and Matisse Thibel, who are, like, good, useful players. But, like, when you get to the playoffs, having two-way wings who can... To, like shoot dribble pass like we saw in the hawk series last year like even with like kevin herter and bogdan bogdanovich like having guys like that in a playoff series can actually be just hugely beneficial and whenever i look around it's always like we're getting back a small guard and like we already have two small guards we're, we're getting back you know a scorer type we already have those types like if you're not getting the guy in this trade, maybe getting some size on the wing, whether it's, you know, Collins who can is more of a big but can kind of act like a, a wing in certain situations, and Hunter, who's proven to be a very good defender, um, at least he was last year. I haven't watched a ton of Hawks this year. But he's proven to be a pretty good defender and, like, is a little bit versatile, like you said, with the switchability and all that stuff. Like, I think that, one of the reasons why Brandon Ingram, like I know he has not been a great defender during his time in the NBA, but I also kind of look at the Fox and Ingram situation similarly where I'm like, eh, I think if you just took the offensive load off these guys' shoulders and like put the right guys around them and like covered up a lot of their weaknesses and took the offensive load off of them to the point where they can preserve their energy for defense, they could be fine players, like fine defensive players, like at least serviceable and like, I think that Joel Embiid, and if you're able to keep Matisse Thibel, and I don't know where da if Danny Green's still on the team in this situation, but like if you have good help defenders, you have guys who can help protect on the back line, like if you were to get whoever in a trade, then you can cover up a lot of mistakes that are made on the perimeter. The Sixers perimeter defense right now is total trash. 
It's been terrible all year to the point where Charlie Brown looks like Scottie Pippen in his prime, like over the last <laughs> weekend, where we're like, oh my God, is this? I'm like, this guy is not an NBA player, and he looks incredible. So so I think that the Sixers are keeping it, like you said, I think they're moving moving the goalposts a little bit. At least they're being a little bit more reasonable. I know they know they're not going to get that top 30 guy now, at least in season. They might be open to making a deal. Just a few other notes before we move on from this. It does sound like Thibault being included in a deal to the Kings might be, I don't want to say it's a deal breaker, but I think that the Sixers think if they're giving up Ben Simmons and if they're moving off Tobias Harris too, because the rumored deal was Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, Thibel for Fox, or I'm sorry, for Halliburton, Barnes, Heald, and, and Filler, I believe. And two picks. Like, that was the deal that Keith Pompey said yesterday. I actually heard that that deal a few hours before Keith had said it, and I didn't know if it was true or not. And when Keith reported it, I, I don't know if you read the Keith article, but... Keith was kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth as he as he tends to do on these things, which was basically, here's a deal that's definitely been made, according to one source. And then the other source is telling me there's been literally no deals. <laughs> so I don't I don't Yeah, really... that was that was confusing. Like I just saw that excerpt and it's like, yeah, in one paragraph, that's on the table. And then the next paragraph, that's not a thing at all. So I was like, it really, we're in the same place where we still don't know. So it's like, isn't I'm it your sure job to figure out what's right and what's wrong? Like, I don't know. I don't know. It fe- it felt a little bit weird to me to report that, but you know, yeah. we st- we stand Keith Pompey, and um, I I do think that like, first off, I want to say I don't think Thibel should ever be a deal breaker in any deal. Like, I I think he's a good young player. And, like, he probably is what he is and, like, is more so a good rotational wing that can make an impact on defense. Like, the offensive stuff, I don't think it will really ever come around for him, even though it's been better this year. I just want to say that, like, if that kind of deal is available where it's, like, you can get Halliburton, Barnes, who's essentially the same tier as Tobias Harris at this point with a better contract, and then Buddy Heald, who I think is a really good fit with the Sixers, plus two first-round picks... And all you have to do is include Thibel. Like to me, that kind of deal makes a lot of sense. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I think you have to do that. I mean, some Sixers fans have kind of always acted like Thibel is untouchable. Uh, and I get being high on him. Like I like Thibel. Like he's probably the most entertaining defender to watch in the league when he's like on his A game. But yeah, I think you have to do that. Like you said, all the pieces fit. And I think just forgetting Buddy, Halliburton and Barnes, like that's a plus lot draft of picks. good plus draft picks. Like that is a lot of value. That is a lot of players who fit well with Embiid. Like you're moving the Harris contract, which is huge. So even if you just got that kind of talent and didn't even think about the cap side of things, I think that kind of makes sense when you factor in moving Harris's contract as well. And the fact that you do kind of have to give up something to get off that, obviously the Kings would value Simmons, but I think adding in Thibault, like if that is the difference between it happening or not, like you have to include Thibault and just kind of and just take it. Um, yeah, just you figure out what bit, later. Yeah, you at least and you at least get some kind of better defense with with um, Barnes over Harris as well. Like you at least get that upgrade there a little bit. Um, obviously, losing Thibault hurts the defense, and like you said, that you know the six perimeter defense has been much worse this season. But I still think when you get that many pieces 
and the draft picks around Embiid, like, and with Embiid at the back line, you, your defense is never going to cater. Like, obviously, you need help around him, but you can at least get by <laughs> just with Embiid and then decent enough pieces around him. And then I think the offensive fit and plus picks, which makes like it you said earlier, out. Out, Halliburton's a good help defender. Like that, that helps. I think Barnes is like you said an, an upgrade at the four over Tobias. I don't think he's like a massive upgrade, but I think he's a pretty good defender and. Tobias has really struggled on that end this year, which is like kind of stood out to me over the last few weeks. It's like he's not as engaged. He's taking on tougher assignments. His health defense has been really bad. And that has been a, a large part of why the team struggled. I actually saw the Nuggets fan post yesterday about the Sixers defensive rating with Thibel and uh, Embiid on the court. Uh, I ran the numbers and basically found out if you even, not even counting Thibel, if you just take Tobias Harris off the court, and it's just Joel Embiid with whoever else. And by the way, I think if you take if you if you don't factor in Thibel, we have like one other positive defender this year, maybe in Danny Green, or like other than like Andre Drummond's been pretty good, but he doesn't play with Embiid. The Sixers have like a ninety eight defensive rating with just Joel Embiid and not Tobias Harris. Yeah. Like it's incredibly good. Small sample, and like might be due to shooting variance and stuff. It was like one hundred and twenty minutes or whatever, but like just removing. Tobias and like adding like you're just hoping Maxi gets better throughout the season. Halliburton would be an upgrade in your rotation as a help defender. Barnes is an upgrade over Tobias. Like you could kind of figure stuff out on that end, and I think you could probably make it work. But the the other thing uh, just about that deal is like, of course the Kings want Thibel. Like he plays like literally prime Kawhi on defense. I get <laughs> like it's. Like, he has De'Aaron De Fox in Guantanamo Bay every time they play. So, like, I totally understand why the Kings would want him. But I also just think from the Kings' perspective, that's, like, the biggest overcorrection trade I've ever heard in my life. Like, okay, we have a bad defense. So let's bring in Ben Simmons and Matisse Thibel. Okay, great. And then Tobias is just thrown in, whatever. But now we're surrounding De'Aaron Fox with two non-shooters and Tobias Harris plus a non-shooting center. Like your offense would then just like push back in the other, like it doesn't really make any sense. It reminds me of what the Knicks did this off season, which is like, okay, our defense got us to the playoffs, but we didn't have any shot creators once we got to the playoffs. So let's literally acquire every on ball player in the NBA <laughs> and figure out the rest later. So I don't really get it from the Kings perspective. I'm not really worried about their perspective, but Long story short, there is, at least from a few reporters, there is, like, real smoke that's out there. Another thing, the last thing that I took from that interview is, like, Kyle Newbeck and some other reporters say Halliburton and, and stuff is what the Sixers want. Jason Dumas say it's De'Aaron Fox and stuff, and that he's, like, the real difference maker. And I think that they both have sources in the front office. I think they're getting from two different sides of the front office, but I think that they, they both have some inside information. So it's confusing on what the messaging is. And then lastly, I did think, I'm not sure if you saw this clip, but it was kind of funny. The Sixers are not interested in CJ McCollum. Like they do not want CJ McCollum in any capacity. Apparently Maury is not a fan of his. It was actually kind of mean the way that it was said. He was like, fuck no he, they do not want cj mccollum and i'm like cj mccollum's a fine player i don't know why they're so adamant about, against him ever being on the sixers but we i'll stop saying that from now on i've even said it in tobias harris deals i've said it in other stuff cj mccollum will not be a sixer we can move on from that as a group and and obviously we it will never happen at least while 
Maury is here. So Yeah, I've heard similar that CJ McCollum just isn't that guy for them. I mean and and there's just some overlap as well. Like obviously he's a he's a much better shooter than a lot of guys they have, but there is some overlap in that he isn't an amazing passer and you know he's quite mid range heavy, so that's kind of a little similar to Tobias. And yeah, I just don't think they value him that highly as and their he like, get main to the headliner. He doesn't get to the line like yeah. Yeah, there's there's just the kind of issues like that with not getting to the rim or the line much, um, and not being a you know plus plus passer that like all those things are the kind of things that the Sixers offense is missing next to Embiid. And if CJ McCollum isn't addressing those issues, then I get why like Maury isn't super high on him. Yeah, especially because his defense is like really bad and exactly. like and then you've got a really small backcourt still. You've yep. just got like you know Tyrese, CJ, and Seth as your kind of top three guards. And then you can never have a big backcourt for like <laughs> defending better in the playoffs. So right. yeah, there's, there's kind of holes there that it creates and then it just doesn't fix some of their kind of main offensive issues. So yeah, it makes sense. And uh, Neil O'Shea is just like the king of drafting small combo guards who can score out of the Like Anthony Simons is like prime Iverson right now. So just hoopers. Yeah. Somehow he figured out how to draft one archetype of player and literally nothing else. It's honestly an accomplishment. I, 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 I respect him for that. So moving on from the trade slot, uh, let's talk a little bit about Joel and beat because Holy shit. I, I'm going to be honest. I didn't think that Joel and bead, like, I know that he was like, second place in MVP last year at one point was arguably the MVP of the league for like a few months. I don't think he's ever played this good. And maybe it's just because I'm such like an offensive minded person that like offense, t- although I, it's funny, I keep saying like, Oh, offense is so important. Offense wins in the NBA nowadays. And then I look at the last three champions and I'm like Raptors, Lakers and bucks all be- built elite defenses and one on that. So maybe I'm fucking wrong. I don't know. But the the tear that Joel Embiid has, has been on, just kind of the cherry on top of that being the 50-point game in 27 minutes, was it? 29 minutes? 27, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that game, like, I, I'll put it like this. I've been watching the Sixers my entire life. I'm 31 years old. And I've never seen a performance like that. Like, he was absolutely dominant. And in the defensive end, like, yeah, like, Mobamba had his bullshit in the first half and, like, hit some threes and, like, whatever. Like, you know, it wasn't the greatest defensive game from Joel. But I don't think I've ever seen a better Sixers performance in my life than what he did the other night. Have Have you ever seen a better performance? I mean, if anything, it would just be any other performances from him be but I mean, it's, it's, hard <laughs> right. to, it's hard to pick like off the top of my head yeah he might have been better or like you could pick a better two-way game maybe but I mean yeah like I saw someone mention on Twitter I can't remember who it was like it was kind of like 2019 playoff levels of him be just doing absolutely everything yep. uh, like he was going that night um but yeah it was a ridiculous performance like 50 points in 27 minutes I mean, I know, you know, it's only against the Magic, but the fact that they, he was just torturing them in like every way possible um, and scoring that fast, that efficiently, um, it's insane. And like, he is better than last season, uh, definitely. Like, I know he got off to kind of a slow start, like he wasn't getting to the rim quite as much and his mid-range jumper just was, was off a bit the first kind of couple of weeks of the season. But I mean, since coming back from COVID, like at the end of November, 
I definitely think has been better than last year, which is insane after being MVP runner up that he's gone up a level. But I think, you know, just with how good his passing has been, like he's kind of taking over that kind of passing hub role, like he's doing more from the top of the floor, just kind of organizing the team and kind of reading things a bit quicker and a bit uh, more effectively. And then like how well he's handling in transition. Like he's had some ridiculous transition plays this season, just like, crossing guys over and, and, you know, dunking or whether he's like passing out to the wing. And then like, I think his defense has been probably as good as ever. I think just in terms of like, you know, he doesn't get as many blocks as he used to, but he's so disciplined and like dominant and just kind of tearing shots around the rim now. And um, his even role is a lot game. harder now. Like not yeah. having, not having Ben, like he he's used to having Ben and like plus help defenders. And like Danny Green's been out a lot this season and hasn't been quite the same. Like, you know, he used to have Robert Covington, Jimmy Butler, like he's doing pretty much everything by himself and by himself when, when, when he's on the court, like the Sixers have a pretty decent defense still. Yeah. Like he has to cover for a lot now. Um, and yeah, I just think he's, you know, he's in probably the best shape he's ever been like his kind of recovery speed and just how much he's, you know, shifting outside and, you know, recovering in the lane and, you know, his pick and roll coverage, like he's always been kind of good at like baiting those lob passes and kind of showing to the the ball handler off the ball screen and then getting back to the rim. Like he's doing that really well. Um, I was kind of going through some of his transition plays for um, a piece I just did. And like there's so many plays where he just breaks up lobs and has just taken the ball kind of like made himself into Ben Simmons and just kind of taken the ball the length of the court and done something with it, which is, you know, a great development for him. And, you know, he probably could have, would have been capable of doing more of that last year as well, but there just wasn't as much of a need for him to because the ball went to Ben in those situations. So I think just a matter of him kind of tightening up his handle a bit, you know, improving his passing and just generally doing more because the Sixers need it. Like he's even better than he was last year for sure. And it does feel like if I were a defender... (laughs) And I'm trying to guard a seven-foot giant with handles and moves like Joel in the open court. Uh, Best of luck. Best of luck to you. As as you said in your piece when you talked about his his playmaking, you talked about the fact that he's getting, I believe, 18%. uh, In the process, he's jumped from recording assists on just 12% of transition plays to 19.4%. So almost 20% of transition plays when he's not scoring, when he's not taking it the entire distance, he is actually setting up his teammates. Like there were a few clips that you showed that was like perfectly locating shooters, Seth Curry and Danny Green, especially it felt like he was able to find them in transition because basically the entire defense, like there was one play, I believe it was against the Nets where the entire defense is just concerned about stopping Joel in the open court from getting to the rim and his gravity is like three people collapsing in on on the paint. And then he's just able to find Seth Curry for, you know, just the best three-point shooter of, from a percentage standpoint of all time in the corner for a wide open three. And like that kind of stuff is really what has taken his game to the next level, not just in the open court, but also in the half court, which is what you discuss a lot in your piece. And it, it does feel insane. Cause just going back to what you were saying about like, since he's come back from COVID, you said he's been averaging 30.5 points per game, 11 rebounds, 4.2 assists to 2.9 turnovers. And by the way, Embiid has always been a guy in his career that's had more turnovers than assists, I believe, every single season of his career. So, like, while he's not 
LeBron or Jokic or these insane level passers, like just having a positive assist to turnover ratio with the amount of usage that he has, like he literally has the highest usage rate in the entire NBA this season is a massive development for the Sixers in the half court. And I, 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 there were just some stats from the other night that just fucking blew my mind, dude. Like the, the fact that he, I, I saw like, Oh, like, you know, every time someone has a big game, it's like, he's the first to do this since Michael Jordan. And he's the first to do this since Wilt Chamberlain, who isn't real and should not be discussed on the podcast. <laughs> uh, but like it, the most insane stat to me of all of it was uh, your colleague, Jackson Frank saying in that game against the Orlando magic, he outscored the or the magic only outscored him by two points during the minutes that he played 52 to 50 in the 27 minutes that Joel Embiid was on the court. Like that just shouldn't happen. It's like, yeah, I, I am constantly blown away by how fucking good this dude is. And, and it brings me to the conversation of, is he the MVP of the league this year? Because last year, I felt like he had a good shot. I felt like Jokic was a rightful MVP. He was really fucking good last year. And by the way, it's just as good, if not better, this year too. He just keeps getting better. Giannis, same thing. Like, a lot of these guys in the conversation, like, do you feel like with the way that, like, because there's a lot of factors to this. Like, there's the, like, just watching the games. The Sixers are a 57-pace win team when he plays, and they're a 22-win pace when he sits like we've played, he's played 33 games. Now the Sixers have more wins than if you were to take their record and stretch out from the games that he hasn't played and stretch it out over an 82 game season. He has more wins just in 33 games when he plays like they're 23 and 10. Now he has more wins than the Celtics have the entire season, despite missing 11 games. I think nine of them were due to COVID and he has more wins than the Lakers the Hawks, and the same amount of wins as the Celtics and Nuggets. So do you think that he is the MVP of the league this year? Or do you think that like it will like Jokic will win back to back Giannis Steph? Is there, is there someone else out there that you think might get the nod over him? I think right now, I think Giannis and Jokic would probably be the one, two in some order. I think just because of, I mean, they've both been, you know, as good, if not better than last season, like, Jokic's efficiency and production is absolutely ridiculous and has become a you know a genuinely kind of good defender this season like just the way he's moving and his activity like outside and around the rim um is really good so I think and you know I think when you sort of factor in Embiid having a slower start I th- and you know not reaching this kind of peak form until the last sort of you know six weeks or so um, I think that might put him back. But I think if he maintains the current form, I don't see why Embiid can't kind of move into the lead as the season goes on. Like if he stays healthy, if the Sixers keep winning at you know this kind of rate that they are when he's available, I think he can he can definitely kind of move into the lead. I just think right now he's probably just behind those two. Um, I think with, you know, Steph has, you know, he's obviously had a really good season overall, but he's cooled off a lot over the last kind of month or so. Um, his efficiencies dropped quite a bit, so I think he probably has kind of taken a step down in the kind of running for things. But and then KD just it, got hurt, and then KD just got hurt. Exactly, I was going to say that. So if those two are kind of out of the picture now, um, or at least kind of on level below Embiid, I think he can move in. I think he can move up for sure. Um, I'd say he's at least third right now. Which, yeah, considering the level of competition and the fact that he had a slow start to the year, uh, and the Sixers 
you know, not having Ben Simmons playing, like the fact that they don't have nearly an ideal team to complement Embiid whatsoever. The fact that he's, I'd say, minimum third place in, in the mix for MVP is like really impressive. Yeah, definitely. And I think the I think Jokic and Giannis both have really good cases. Um, the Jokic thing is interesting to me because I think the Nuggets are fucking horrible without him. Like I've just like yeah. some of some of the numbers and just watching the games, it's like they're not they're like a G League team without him. So I get the argument. I do just want to say I'm the advanced stat thing. Like if I keep seeing that on the timeline, like I'm going full ball don't stop like I'm becoming a full eye test guy. like I'm losing my mind hearing about all this stuff like I just want to say like my like my buddy NBA Couchside, who Sixers fans have argued with in the past he thinks Jokic is better than Embiid but he brought up he's a big advanced stats guy he's into all that stuff and he brought up he's like it's not really f- fair to compare their situations because he's like there's two elements to it the first element is that defense Daryl Moria said it Every stats guy says this advanced metrics do not capture defense well because there is not a single person in the NBA who thinks that Jokic is a better defender than Embiid and he is better in every advanced stat defensively this year. And like, yes, like you said, he's an improved defender. He's become a pretty good defender and like, you know, he'll still have games like the other night where he's getting torched by Reggie Jackson and stuff and that shit happens occasionally. But I do think that like the fact that like, you can't really put Embiid's role in the context defensively in the same way that like offensive impacts stats have come really far to the point where like they're actually a pretty good measure of how good a, gu- a guy is on offense. And like, yes, Jokic is the better offensive player than Joel Embiid. But I think when it comes to the two way stuff, like Embiid is clearly, it, unless you value offense to the point where it's like the only thing that matters, which is totally possible then I think you have to at least consider Joel in the conversation with Jokic because the defensive impact is is very real. And, like, if you gave Joel, like, a handful of average defenders or above-average defenders, he could make a really good defense, whereas Jokic can't do that. What Jokic gives you is the ability to play limited offensive players, like, around him that are really good defenders, and that makes the team's defense better. So there's that element of it, just because Jokic is an amazing passer, amazing playmaker, crazy scoring gravity. Probably, like, to me, it would be between Steph and Jokic for best, like, offensive players in the NBA right now. Like, I think when you want to talk, or I think just, like, and what I always say about, like, Steph is, like, you mentioned the fact that his numbers are down, and I don't think he's going to win MVP. But to me, Steph's Steph's impact on the game is always so invisible. Like, he, the entire defense's plan is to stop Steph Curry. Like, even if he goes 0 for 10, he could still have a positive impact on a game. Like, that's how fucking good that guy is. Jokic is a similar thing, except the offense runs through him a lot more. And I do think that, like... The two-way stuff to me, it's it's Giannis, Embiid, LeBron, although I've heard LeBron's defense isn't quite as good this year. But like to me, it's like those three for the two-way stuff and then from the offense. So like if you only value offense and like if Jokic becoming a better defender to the point where he's like pretty good instead of like where he was a few years ago when he was just like pretty bad, that, that definitely is all factored in. But like the advanced stats argument is a little bit, it's just one component of it. Like you have to take everything into context, and I don't think that those stats take 
things into context properly. I just, it bothers me when people say that. Like, the on-off numbers are going to be crazy because, like, Joel Embiid has Andre Drummond, who's been pretty good as a backup this year. And, like, our bench lineups have actually been pretty good without Joel for the first time in his career. And then you factor in, and Doc runs those all bench lineups, you factor in Jokic, like, they just crater when he's off the court, which... Like you really believe Jokic is having the greatest season of in NBA history right now? Because that's what advanced stats say. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, that's fair though. And I think there's, I mean, there's just always so much noise with like on-off numbers that a lot of people just look past. Like when people post those like streams of just endless stats. Um, and I'm not an anti-numbers guy at all. I think you need both that and film. But yeah, when absolutely. you just post a whole bunch of on-off numbers or whatever it is, or people using offensive and defensive rating for a single player which just isn't how it works so stupid Um, you just yeah you just lose all the context of like who they're on the floor with or if you know for instance you know the Nuggets have dealt with loads of injuries you know Jamal Murray's been out if the Nuggets are that weak you know just because of their you know their lack of talent around Jokic or you know for various injuries or whatever like they're going to be bad when he's off the floor because they have bad replacements for the most part like like you said if the Sixers have decent you know backups now and you know they've got Tyrese Maxey who can help lead the bench and you know Drummond's an upgrade over Dwight like the drop-off without Embiid isn't going to be as big so you can say you know his on-off swing isn't as big as as Jokic but that's just because the other players around him are, are different and maybe a little better like that doesn't mean that the individual Embiid or Jokic is worse or better so yeah a lot of stuff kind of misses the context which is annoying but I think I think over the last month, I think Embiid has probably been the best player in the league. I think that's fair. Um, like the defense has been so good, the offense has been so good. His passing has been better. Like scoring incredibly efficiently, like over thirty, just over thirty points a game. I think his true shooting percentage is like sixty-two or sixty-three. Yeah, sixty-two percent. You had that in your article. Yeah, yeah, which is which is you know incredibly efficient. Um, I think when you put all that together, like his two-way play has probably been as good as anyone's if not better so I think if he kind of maintains this form and you know like I said if the Sixers keep winning at a reasonable enough level to the point where they're not like at the bottom of the playoff picture and you know voters get put off by that when they're considering MVP candidates I think he can absolutely kind of become the favorite he just needs to kind of sustain this peak play for for more than like the sort of six weeks or so whatever it's been so far yeah and the narrative part of it is big because I'm going to get galaxy brain again, do, do a little bit of dimensions of chess here. But part of the things that I like, I think Joel's ultimate goal is a title. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he doesn't want to contend and doesn't want to win a title, but one of the things that he's coveted for years has been the MVP. And last year he talked about it going into two years ago. He talked about it going into the season and had the worst year of his career, arguably Uh, not necessarily due to factors, that he caused, but due to the situation and everything that was going on that season. And then last year, he obviously was gunning for it this year. He's not sitting out due to injury, all that stuff. The narrative part of it is a big part of these like it or not. It is a big part of how voters decide how the media shapes everything. I think the Ben Simmons thing is in a major factor in his corner. Like, yeah, I think so. Cause you can be like, you know, the Sixers, they've not had enough help. You know, they've been dealing with the drama of Ben Simmons. They've not had any, you know, reinforcements come in because there's not been a trade. Embiid has carried the team in his absence and has performed even better than ever, like lifting up the rest of the team. You know, his passing's improved. He's making other guys better. Like, yeah, you can absolutely kind of build up that angle. Like, voters like that stuff. 
Yep. The Ramona Shelburne's of the world are going to fucking eat that up, dude. Are you kidding me? Brian <laughs> Windhorse is Brian Windhorse is literally he loves that slot. He's a big fan of that. But but I do think that the the narrative of just like that, the fact that like the other the bet, highest paid player on the team is having a, a down year in Tobias Harris. Uh, the fact that it's like you said, like he's making his teammates better. Like Matisse Thibel, who has been nothing but a negative offensive player his entire career, is at least having some offensive utility this season as the second best cutter in the NBA scoring wise. Shooting, as you said in your article, he's shooting 82% at the rim. I looked up his cutting stats and he's shooting 1.76 points per cut this season, which is only behind Josh Green of the Mavericks, who doesn't even do it as much as Thibel does and doesn't play as many minutes as Thibel does. And LeBron James is the one behind them. So like, just to put it in perspective, like he, like he's at least lifting up his teammates offensively in a way that I don't think that we really saw before other than just like having insane shooting gravity and getting shooters open shots. So like he's figuring out different ways with the face up game, the playmaking stuff that you brought up to like get his teammates more involved in a way that he was not before. And I think the spacing all helps. I think all of that is just making things easier for him definitely helps. I think Jokic, Jokic's argument, and by the way, like, I think, I've talked about it before, like, Jokic could be the best player in the NBA. Like, he really might be. He might be the best player in the world right now. At least, at worst, he's the fourth best player. And I think that, like, he's 100% deserving, too, if he is to win MVP or whatever due to his circumstances. Like, he, they have basically two max players out with Michael Porter Jr. I don't think he's on his max contract yet, but he will be, and they'll they're already regretting that, I'm sure. Uh, and then Jamal Murray being out for most of the season. Like, Murray could come back by the end of the year. But, like, if there is no Ben Simmons trade and Joel Embiid continues to play this way for the rest of the season and Tobias Harris continues to slump and they're still winning anyway and they're on pace to be, as I said before, like a 57-win team when they pl- when he plays. Like, if they get over 50 wins, they're, it's really just going to come down to which team finishes higher with Jokic, Giannis, and Embiid. Because right now, I believe the Bucks are like a game and a half ahead of the Sixers, maybe a game ahead of the Sixers. The Nuggets are lower in the standings, but they could continue to rise in the standings. And then the Sixers, if they swing a trade, if they don't swing a trade, could end up being higher just by the fact that Joel Embiid has, has been playing more games. So if any of those teams finish with a top four record, like we don't have to talk about Giannis, everything that's ever needed to be said about Giannis has been said. But if any of those teams finish with a top four record in their conference, I think that's the guy that's going to end up winning MVP because that's generally how it goes, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it will be, like you said, record-based and then just availability. Like if one of those guys misses, you know, two, three weeks with a little injury, that probably could that could take them out the running if it's kind of happening towards the end of voting. So if they all kind of keep playing like they are now, I think it's, yeah, whoever's whoever has the better record and whoever's been healthiest. Like if Embiid can avoid missing any more time, but right now he's kind of having one of the you know, besides just the general dominance, like he's having one of the kind of healthiest stretches of his career, you know, since coming back from COVID, just I think in terms of consistently playing, you know, I think 23 every game. consecutive games or something. I think it, yeah, I think it's like a, a either a record or close to his record, I think, of yep. consecutive games. Um, so if he can just stay that available, then yeah, he can be right in the mix with those guys. Because that's the best ability, right? Availability. Best, exactly. Yeah. That's what my <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'm suiting up tonight to quote Mike Levin. You know, just I'm I'm going out there and I'm I'm playing. I'm available, baby. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit. Let's just wrap up the Embiid stuff. I do just want to say, people keep talking about, like, where does Embiid rank all time with the Sixers? I think that's a harder conversation to have because it's, like, eras are very different. You know, like, Julius Irving, Moses Malone, like, all the guys that played pre-1990 to me, I don't really know how to stack him up against those guys because, also, I just want to say, another person who's fake is Dolph Shays. I saw a Reddit post that was, like, talking about, like, Will they become the best player ever? And it talked about Dolph Shays playing for the team when they were still located in Syracuse and how no one will ever pass him. And I'm like, bro, it wasn't even the Sixers. It was the Syracuse Nationals or whatever. Like, that is fake. That's definitely fake. As we've stated on Sixers and Six, shout out to Cliff, Will is not real. We've said it on here before. Will is not a real person. Stay woke. So I don't really know how to compare him to like the older generations, but I have watched the Sixers for my whole life. I was a little bit, I'm a little bit too young to remember Charles Barkley, but I do remember Iverson and he's clear. It's clearly Barkley, Iverson and Embiid for the past 30 years. Like, how would you, it's, it's hard to do, but like, how would you rank them as Sixers just in general, like, do you think that Embiid is going to end up number one? Do you think he's already number one, or do you think that he has a shot? I think, I mean, and I'm saying this as someone who's like, you know, I cover the Sixers. I've not grown up as a Sixers fan, so, so my kind of history of watching those guys and like just connection to them as players is going to be different to to fans who've been following all their lives. So, of course, it'll probably be a little different. But I think, I think, you know, Iverson currently being top would be a fair argument if you kind of look at longevity and the kind of run to the finals and that kind of thing. And B doesn't have that kind of signature playoff run yet, or just not gone as deep yet. Yeah. Um, so I think if you want to at least say Embiid kind of needs maybe a few more years like this under his belt or, you know, a, a deeper playoff run um, conference finals, something like that, I think that would be fair. But I think Embiid as just a player is probably the best now. Um, I just think his kind of efficiency and two-way dominance and like his kind of leap last year and again this year, like if he's, even if this is his peak and he never gets better, like I think he's the best player. Um, The fact that, you know, I'm not going to rule out he's better again next season. Like if he keeps growing like this, um, you know, if he can stay healthy and he's kind of just taking his prime right now and like the way he's kind of expanding his skill, you know, just facing up like his, his shot creation off the dribble at his size is insane. Like the fact that he's improving his handle and transition and kind of doing all that extra stuff. And, you know, you factor in the, the defense as well. I think, I think he's probably the best player now. I just think if you want to put him behind AI, just cause you want to see more like longevity and kind of impact over a longer period and, and maybe a bit more playoff success just to kind of check those boxes. And I think that's fair, but I think just as a player in beads, probably at the top, where would yeah. you kind of rank those guys? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say from, like, I and all respect to Barkley and Iverson and all that shit, and this is recency bias, and this is, like, I'm more invested in the Sixers now than I ever have been. So, obviously, there's a ton of bias there. But from a talent perspective, a two-way perspective, I think he is the best. Like, I just think, yeah. like, I've never seen a player dominate like he has the past two seasons. I don't care if it's regular season or playoffs or whatever. Like, he has been – and, by the way, just want to put out there, the Sixers have won, like, every playoff series when Joel Embiid is on the court. Like, 
we lose in the minutes where he sits. And like, yeah, maybe that's a knock on the fact that he can't play 48 minutes in a game like Giannis or KD or whatever. But like, he's at least gotten them to the point where he shouldn't be the one that is blamed for their playoff failures. And like, so, and like, yeah, they're not beating, you know, they're not going up against world beaters except for that Raptor series. That Raptors team is very good. But like Iverson was playing in an incredibly weak Eastern conference. I talked about this on Sixers and six. Like, I think that Iverson from a cultural perspective, what he meant to the game, what he what who he was as a player means more than anything that Joel Embiid could ever do in his career. Just because I think like he's one of the top five most popular players of all time for a reason. Like he really yeah. did change basketball from a global perspective from like, you know, the kid from uh, those movies, uh, Jerry Maguire got cornrows and stuff like a like, like insane cultural impact and wore an Iverson jersey and stuff like insane cultural impact that would probably be problematic and get that kid canceled now. But like the idea of Joel Embiid being like the best and the most talented to me is like, I think he's at least in the argument and I think that he probably is like, I just think that. If you were to take Joel Embiid and put him during Iverson or Barkley's, oh, I guess Barkley did play against Michael Jordan in in the Eastern Conference, so it might not be fair to say that. But like, if you want to talk about like the Eastern Conference and how it was during Iverson's prime, like with like the early two thousands, and you know, like the Nets making it to the finals twice, and the Sixers getting to the finals one year as like not a great team. Like I think Embiid would fucking coast and crush his way to a finals back then. And it's hard to compare eras, but like it is like he wasn't going up against Kevin Durant and Giannis and like Embiid hasn't even gotten the chance to go up against those guys in the East, but like, or Kawhi, like when they went up against him in the Raptor series a few years ago, my whole thing is like, if we're going to compare the playoff runs, like, we have to take into context that like Iverson's Eastern conference was easier. And then we also have to take into context that Joel Embiid, when he is on the court is like still a massive plus in every series that he has played in. It's just maybe the one knock you would have on him is the fact that he can't play the entire game. And, and that, that could be what holds him back ultimately. And like Iverson for like, you can pick apart his game, like amazing player, all that stuff, but like he was playing 48 minutes of 48 minutes in some playoff games, which like for a six foot guard to like take that much punishment and still be able to play is, is absolutely amazing. But, um, okay. So let's move on to last topic, which is Seth Curry, because I feel like the fan base has soured on Seth a little bit this year. It feels like every time we talk about Seth, it's not like, oh, he's having the best season of his career. Oh, he's amazing from the mid-range, and he's taken a step up in role and responsibility this year, and he's been really good, blah, blah, blah. It's always about, like, his defense not being good enough. Uh, you know, if we want to contend. Take more threes. Yeah, take more threes. Yeah. If we want to contend, he needs to be, like, he can't be a starter, all this stuff. Like, I don't really know what to make of the Seth stuff, but like, I feel like the tides turned against him a little bit. Like, what have you seen from Seth this year? And like, why do you think that is? Yeah, I don't really get why some people seem to be a little lower on him. Like he's better than ever. Like he's having a career year into his thirties, which it just doesn't happen very often. Um, And the fact that the Sixers have, you know, they've needed more from him 
you know, and everyone else, you know, with, with Simmons out and, you know, no replacement, like he, I think he's kind of upped his game as much as he could really. Like he's got career highs, you know, 15.8 points, uh, four assists per game. He's, he's at like 51, 42, 88 shooting splits. Um, you know, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty much having like, you know, 16 points a game in a 50, 40, 90 season, you know, true shooting percentage well over 60. Um, I jotted down a couple of other uh, sort of play type numbers as well just before we started this. So he's 90, 90th percentile in jumpers off the dribble, 93rd percentile as a pick and roll ball handler when you increase Crazy. passes, 97th percentile in handoffs, which obviously he uses loads with Embiid. Like he's a small guard, not particularly explosive. He's had to increase his usage on a worse team to try and help the offense. And he's been incredibly efficient still. Um, and yeah, he's just kind of doing whatever you need. Like, is it, he's a decent enough passer, kind of as a sort of secondary ball handler type. Um, he's shooting so well off the dribble this season. Like, he's getting to his spots really well from mid range. Um, I feel like he's taking more pull up threes as well. I'd have to check the numbers, but I feel like he's just been more kind of aggressive hunting for his shots. Like, he started getting into that a bit more late last season, kind of once he got healthier after dealing with COVID. I think that really kind of knocked him for a while and kind of lowered his energy and, you know, he wasn't himself, you know, for a while last season, but that kind of started picking up late last season. I think he's just kind of built off that this year, kind of ramping up how aggressive he is off the dribble and how effective he is. Um, and yeah, I think he's just kind of, you know, obviously there's holes in his game. Like, you know, he doesn't get to the line a ton. You know, we know about the defensive stuff, but, and yes, he could, you know, take more threes and, you know, not hesitate sometimes when he gets kind of those slightly contested looks. But I mean, he's kind of doing whatever he reasonably could. And the fact that he's, yeah, increased his usage on a worse team and, and stayed so efficient. I just think it's really impressive. Um, yeah. And he's and been yeah, the I, second I best player could, on the yeah. team this year. <laughs> yeah. Like he couldn't really do any more. Like, yeah, I think he's just having a great season. I think, yeah, he deserves his credit for it. Yeah. And the, what you said about like the pick and roll stuff, the dribble handoff stuff, all the, the pull up jumpers. Like I feel like ball don't stop right now. The one dribble pull up, two dribble pull up. Like he is, <laughs> He is shooting right now, and by the way, on higher volume than he ever has in his career, 57% from the mid-range. I just want to put in perspective, that's like what some guys, like some decent, okay finishers, finish around the rim. Like, his mid-range game this year has been insane. Like, he is, and obviously Kevin Durant has much higher difficulty of shots and a higher volume, but like, Kevin Durant, who is the best mid-range shooter of all time, arguably is shooting 54% from the mid-range this year. LaMarcus Aldridge, who's one of the best uh, uh, mid-range shooters of all time, is shooting 58%. Like, of everyone who's above him, LaMarcus Aldridge has now creeped above him in terms of mid-range shooting. But Seth, for pretty much the entire season, was the best mid-range shooter, except for three centers, Hartenstein, Boban, and Rashawn Holmes, who all are generally taking floaters in that range. They're not really shooting like mid-range shots and and um, and by the way like some of those guys like like Boban plays 6 minutes a game and has only played in 16 games. Hartenstein has played 15 minutes a game, low volume. Like the the idea that Seth Curry is the thing that's going to hold the Sixers back, which I've heard from some people. Like I and I there are a lot of people I respect and I think highly of their opinions and like I don't think that they're like out of pocket when they say a lot of this shit but I don't understand why like we only look at Seth and his value as a three-point shooter 
which by the way, like if you are to scale back his on ball reps a little bit more, his number and his rate in three point shooting, like I know he's playing more minutes, but last year was shooting like seven threes per game in the playoffs. He obviously shot the fucking lights out in that Hawk series, but there is this narrative that he's the reason, one of the major reasons we lost the Hawk series. And I feel like the total opposite. I feel like one of the reasons why we were in the Hawk series was because of Seth. Yeah. And I think that like, yeah, Kevin Herter had two really good games and it was a tough matchup for him because of his size and blah, 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 and all that shit. But at the same time, Doc Rivers never sent any help defense. He was letting Seth basically die against Kevin Herter. And on top of that, the the biggest thing to me is like it, without Seth shot creation, what kind of offense? Like, oh, the reason we lost the Hawk series was because our offense wasn't good enough. It wasn't because and our without defense, Seth, it would have been terrible. Like, it would have been, been yeah. Uh, it would it would have been Tobias Embiid post ups where he gets doubled every possession. Tobias dribbling the air out of the ball. Ben being afraid to sh- like Seth. And Maxi in that little, and then Shake in those few games were the only reason we had any sort of shot creation. And Seth was the best of the three. And like, I don't think that Seth is going to be like the primary creator on a title team. Obviously not. That's not the goal of this whole thing. If you scale back his opportunities a little bit more on the ball, move him off the ball, he's proven to be very effective playing with Damian Lillard, playing with Luka Doncic, playing with Joel Embiid. Like he is kind of like, I, I put it like this the other day. I think Seth Curry might be one of the best players in the NBA that will never be in the all-star conversation. Like he's probably a top 75 guy. He'll never, his name will never be thrown in there. Cause I don't think that he puts up quite enough stats or impact to really get to that point. But like, he could be one of the 10 best players that will just never be in that conversation. Like, I think he's that good. Yeah. He's kind of like sub all-star production, but with elite efficiency. Right. Um, and the defensive issue is like that's the case for loads of guards. Like loads of small guards are worse in the playoffs on defense. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not exactly some you know special thing with Seth. Um, and yeah, like you said, they were in a lot of those games against the Hawks, partly because he was shooting the lights out. Um, you know, there wouldn't have been the chance to for people to complain about you know her to bullying Seth on defense if Seth didn't keep them in the games to begin with, so they weren't just blowouts anyway, and you wouldn't even right. notice the <laughs> defensive issues. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, just his production and efficiency is, is really impressive. And I think, yeah, like, you know, the, just the mid range shooting stuff as well. Like a lot of the guys that would do as well or better than Seth would be, you know, your kind of top guard creators or like your, you know, your big forwards or bigs who can just shoot over guys or take easy mid range shots. I think for Seth to be doing what he's doing, you know, at his size, you know, well, like six, two, uh, and not immense speed i think the fact that he can get off so many shots and maintain so yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'll be polite we're we're praising him Um, yes exactly uh yeah the fact that he can get off so many shots and maintain that kind of efficiency with you know his limitations physically i think that's that's more impressive um as well and yeah like he's he's really important to the Sixers offense like he's a very good offensive player he obviously has his limitations but he's a very good offensive player and yeah, they, they really wouldn't be as good without him. Like if you took out if you took him out of the picture, like that that you know, that would, you know, knock Embiid as well. And obviously not that Embiid's production would fall off or anything, you know, majorly, but just Seth's gravity and kind of how well they mesh with their, their two man actions and stuff. Um yeah, it's it's really important to what the Sixers do. So you you know, you you know, people can knock the limitations and stuff, but they, they really need him to kind of be at their best. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like I, I hear people. It's funny because it's like people get mad at Seth for the defense, which I totally understand. But also, like, I think he has his moments where he's not like a total zero on that end. And then they turn around and they're like, "Oh, we just need to like imagine if we started Buddy Heald instead." I'm like, "Buddy Heald's like the worst defender in the NBA." Like, have you ever watched a Kings game? <laughs> like, no, he's right. he's bigger, but he's not gonna be that much more. If if anything, he could possibly be worse. And yeah, maybe we can cover up some of his stuff. And he tries a little bit more here and stuff. But like, it's asking a lot for a guy. I think like people just love the i. And I think Buddy would be a great fit here. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think Buddy as a six man or a fringe starter on the Sixers would make a lot of sense with certain combinations. But just because a guy puts up 10 threes a game doesn't mean he's like infinitely more valuable than Seth Curry, who like is probably better at everything else except for the fact that he puts up 10 threes a game. So like I said it before we traded for Seth Curry last year. I said, I think Maury's going to swing a trade for a guy who puts up most of Buddy Heald's production, but on a better contract than trading for Buddy Heald. And that's what I feel like they found with Seth Curry, which is like, he's not going to give you the same three-point volume. And of course, the Sixers could use more George Niang, Danny Green, Isaiah Joe, uh, uh, Buddy Heald type shooters. But Seth's pretty much been, like the way you put it was perfect. Like you're literally getting the most you could possibly get out of Seth Curry this season. Like amazingly efficient scoring, decent enough passing, uh, to the point where like the Sixers just don't have passers and he's kind of been needed to do that kind of stuff and like really is a huge part of the Sixers offense. And and as I said before, we just kind of need to give him his flowers for for that and and stop stop hating on him. And and once again, look at every contract in the NBA. There there might be no one that makes less than ten million dollars a year that is better than Seth Curry uh, that isn't on a rookie deal like Luka Doncic or Trey Young or whoever. Like I really like don't Seth think. Easily, yeah, Seth could easily make twice the amount he does, and you'd be like, "That's a fair deal." Yep. Like, I mean, oh, what? I mean, Buddy makes easy. what twenty twenty ish yep. million. I can't remember 22, how big. Twenty two, I think. Yeah, something like that. That's, uh, that's almost a third of the price, and he's yeah. giving you similar production, similar efficiency. He just doesn't get up quite as many threes, but otherwise, like you said, he's probably better at pretty much everything else. Like yeah. You can you have to appreciate what he does at his price point, at his age. Like, yeah, he, he gives them so much. And yeah, the, the value for money is 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 really good. It's stupid, really good. dude. And yeah, and also, most importantly, he's the better brother. We finally got the better brother here in Philadelphia. So he's, he's the best curry. Yeah. <laughs> of all three, actually. Now that I think about it, he's, he's the best. He's the goat. But all right, Tom, that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I would love to have you back on in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate having me on, man. It's been good fun. Peace.